I'm Martin Shipton, Chief Reporter of Media Wales, and you're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. It's Martin Shipton, and today I'm with Professor Kevin Morgan from Cardiff University, who has been, I would say, a major player in Welsh civil society for many years now, back at the time of the devolution referendum in 1997. He was the chair of the Yes for Wales campaign, uh, but he's also very well known uh, for his academic contributions um, in the field of social sciences. So, Kevin, where in Wales are you from? I'm originally from a small village called Rikos, which is the northernmost point of Rhondda-Canentaf, and it's famous, I guess, for one thing above all. It's the site of the last pit in Wales, Tower Colliery. Uh, that's where our village is, Rikos. So it's right on the cusp of the end of the coalfield and the beginning of the Brecon Beacon. So an interesting place to grow up. And what sort of impact did the environment have on you? Oh, I think a, a terrific impact, looking back. I mean, it was a bastion of socialism. And uh, the miners were the biggest contingent in the village. It's when I was a young boy. And increasingly, as the coal disappeared, uh, you still saw a strong sort of trade union tradition there. And it was a Labour Party stronghold for, for many, many years. Uh, more recently, Plaid Cymru has challenged the Labour Party as the Labour Party became less visible in the village and Plaid became more visible, shall we say. So it's an interesting contrast now, politically, between Labour and Plaid. I don't think I ever met a Conservative in all my life there, but... That's a, a symptom of the kind of place it was, I guess. And how did you get involved in the kind of studies for which you have become uh, renowned now? Well, I came back to Wales from the University of Sussex in 1989. And very, very quickly, I sort of teamed up with Ron Davis. And uh, Ron, in op- opposition then, asked me to run kind of advisory group as he was thinking of new policies for, for, for Welsh Labour. Actually, in the university, we were dubbed the Ronettes, uh, which I didn't mind at all, because the Ronettes, if you remember, were quite a good, uh, a good group. And uh, from then on, I began working in the la- this Labour group uh, with Ron, really drawing on my academic work of uh, dynamic regions in Europe. And one of the things they all had in common was a devolved governance system. And therefore I became convinced, and still am convinced, that you can't do a lot for yourself unless you've got some autonomy. That's what I fed into Ron's thinking. And we um, we hit it off along those lines. And of course, the whole idea for devolution in Wales had uh, gone into a bit of doldrums, hadn't it, uh, after the referendum in 1979 when there was a four-to-one majority against. And perhaps at that time uh, there was quite a split in the nation between a minority of people, I guess largely Welsh-speaking perhaps, who had a sense of Wales as a nation. But that didn't sufficiently extend to the the more dominant English-speaking uh, community What do you think it was that changed things, that enabled the referendum to be won in 1997, albeit by a very small margin? Well, in a word, and only only slightly facetiously, 
I would say, Redwood. That encapsulates for me a lot of the changes. I was lucky to be outside of Wales during those dark days of devolution following the 1979 rejection. I was living in Brighton in, in those days. So w- when I came back in 89, I could already feel there was a new zeitgeist in Wales. And uh, the Quango state did a lot to inadvertently create a new uh, climate of opinion where, you know, I, I was aghast, for example, at the fact that the Conservative government, which had lost power through the ballot box in Wales, could still gain influence through the appointment process of the patronage state. That was one of my first working papers, actually, that I wrote when I came back to Wales, exposing the extent of the Quango state, and I think we call it the democratic deficit. That played well into Ron's uh, narrative that devolution was essential for a new kind of development. And that was one of the Yes for Wales um, slogans. We need a democratic system in Wales to democratise the Quango state. That was the political demand, if you will. And the second demand was more of an economic development demand that Ron believed, as I did at the time, that um, devolution was necessary to give a boost to the Welsh economy. And while we've been successful with the political demand, we've been less successful with the second. Of course, John Redwood, who you alluded to, was the Tory Secretary of State for Wales. And there was a lot of antagonism to the fact that this man, who was both uh, in Conservative terms even quite a a hardline right-winger, was the MP for Wokingham uh, near Reading, which had absolutely no connection with Wales. And you had this um, sense of uh, uh, Conservative government in Westminster imposing somebody who was regarded as as the Governor-General in a sort of colonial sense. To what extent do you think that narrative got across to ordinary people? I think it did begin to percolate outside the bubble of uh, the devolution enthusiast, if you will, in the sense that the appointment of Redwood... I, I can still remember, was was widely perceived not just to be inappropriate, but deeply offensive, because it was anathema to Welsh values. This is, wasn't just an ordinary Conservative, like a, like a Disraelian one-nation Tory, like Peter Walker was, for example, who fitted in very well in Wales, in my opinion. He was an arch-Thatcherite, and that was why Welsh people took against him because it was a deeply offensive appointment. And that inadvertently did a lot to rally uh, the cause for devolution in Wales. I used to joke with my uh, Yes for Wales friends that when Wales was a a mature democracy, we'd raise a statue to John Redwood uh, in the Senate because uh, he did more to rally support for us than, uh, than anyone else I could think of. And, of course, he made it worse, and perhaps this was something which it was possible to popularise, if you like, when he attended a rugby match and was mumbling his way through the uh, the national anthem. Um, I mean, that became quite iconic, didn't it? Yes, fortunately, that went viral, and it kind of summed up the disconnect between this arch-Thatcherite who was mimicking a role of being the le- political leader of Wales at one of our premier cultural events. Yeah, that, that sort of summed up the disconnect as well as anything, I think. So at the time when the Yes for Wales campaign was uh, doing its stuff, which was actually after the 
Tony Blair landslide in May 1997. Um, I think a decision was taken, wasn't it, um, to have the referendum quite early in the administration to take advantage of the uh, uh, popularity that Tony Blair had. Uh, and uh, ironically, he was never a great enthusiast for devolution, as we in fact found out uh, quite shortly with the way in which he uh, didn't want the uh, popular Rodri Morgan to be the first minister. But uh, you had a situation where it was possible for the referendum to take place in the context of a big victory that had uh, occurred for Labour. And it was just really a, a very narrow majority. Did you think at the time that you got involved that it would be so tight, or did you expect there to be a, a, a bigger majority for devolution? A year or so ahead of the referendum, I thought we'd win more handsomely. As we got into the cut and thrust of the debate... I could tell that the enthusiasm wasn't as widespread as, as I'd anticipated, particularly outside the bubble. I always had an, an extra reference point with my friends from Rikos because I would, my, my parents were alive then and uh, I would re regularly visit there and I didn't find the enthusiasm that I'd expected. There was a lot of scepticism, particularly with respect to the calibre, the potential calibre of politician, and the expense and the, you know, the number of nurses and doctors and teachers that could be hired uh, for the money we were spending on the uh, proposed uh, assembly. So that always bothered me. So I, I wasn't as surprised as some of my Yes Wales colleagues about the narrowness of the margin, but by God, it was one of the most dramatic nights of my life. I mean, apart from having children, being present at the birth of my sons, it was probably the most dramatic night of my life before the Carmarthen vote came in. Because, of course, it was the Carmarthen vote which sealed it, because up until then, things appeared to be going in the opposite direction. So you must have been seriously on tenterhooks. Uh, I was. I, you can say that. It was, a, it was a huge relief for us when Ron took the stage in that famous photograph with his allies. Deeply moving. And then, of course, everything went a bit awry, didn't it? Because... Uh, before the Assembly was established, Ron was off the scene, essentially, because of the Clapham Common incident. And the Assembly got off to a rather rocky start with uh, uh, Alan Michael in place um, as a consequence of a rather rigged uh, electoral college system. Um, and he wasn't a man who appeared to be instinctively um, in favour of genuine devolution. If Ron Davis hadn't gone off the scene in that way. Do you think the Assembly would have got off to a better start? I certainly do. This is one of the great counterfactuals of Welsh political life, isn't it? What if? I had enormous uh, confidence in Ron as a politician. I thought he was an, an unusual Labour politician in the sense that he was, uh, he was neither British nor Welsh, but hybrid. He, he recognised the need to embrace uh, Whitehall power networks, he, he realised we needed far more autonomy. And that all, always wasn't popular, always in the in the Labour Party machine in Wales. But he was a good leader, in my view, and he was intellectually very, very smart. So I deeply regretted the fact that he, he was forced to withdraw from the, from the scene. And then, of course, as you say, we, we had a false dawn uh, with Alan Michael. He was widely unpopular among devolutionists. And I wasn't surprised then that his reign was as short as it was because uh, Rodri was, was the right man at the right time 
to really embed devolution and to make it as popular as it could be. It was always something of a minority sport, in my view, uh, and we can see that, see that 20 years later, the fact that um, so few people, sadly, in Wales realise, even today, who is in charge of education policy, health policy. So there's still a way to go to popularising devolution. Having said that, of course, all the survey results suggest that however unpopular devolution might be thought to be, the people who, who, who propose to abolish it would never win the day because we've got it now and it's embedding itself slowly but surely and people wouldn't want it taken away. That's my own view and I think the survey evidence uh, from our Welsh Government Centre really underlines that. Now, uh, in a few months' time, we'll be coming up to the 20th anniversary of the Assembly. Uh, Labour has been in charge all the time. There have been a couple of periods when there have been coalitions. In the first term, uh, for part of the first term, uh, Rodri Morgan managed to uh, secure a coalition with the Lib Dems. And then between 2007 and 2011, there was a Labour-plied coalition. But you've had this party which has been in charge for 20 years. Is that in itself a good thing? I think, normally speaking, single-party dominance is not a healthy state of affairs in any country, it seems to me. And the challenge uh, for, for that kind of party, the Labour Party in Wales, Christian Democrats in Bavaria... CSU, as it's called, Ulster Unionists for many years, and then the Basque National Party, which has been in office even longer than the Labour Party. The challenge always is how, how do you renew yourself in power when you haven't got an obvious alternative? How do you inject diversity and novelty? And how do you, in a sense, uh, pose constructive challenge to yourself when you're in power? Those are the big questions that we have to ask any party that's in power for so long. The Basques, of course, have have managed it. They've become an international success story in terms of an old region reinventing itself under one party rule since since nineteen eighty. So that's it. I do a lot of my work in the Basque country, and it's always struck me that a single party rule can work if it's well connected to civil society and if you're able to bring on some new voices, new blood, as it were, from within the ranks and you pose constructive challenge to yourself. I don't believe we've been as successful, obviously, in Wales in doing that. One of the huge challenges is the economy of Wales, isn't it, uh, Kevin? Why do you think it is that uh, after um, all the initiatives that there have been, uh, we're still pretty low down the league table uh, in Europe from Wales in terms of um, uh, measures like uh, GVA. What is it that stops the country moving forward in the way that many people would want it to? Well, that, that is the big disappointment about devolution, of course. I mean, the, the economy's been flatlining uh, since before we had devolution, so I don't attribute it to devolution itself. But I was one of those people, I am one of those people, who believed that there should have been more of a devolution dividend with respect to uh, the, the the economy. 
there are many reasons why we are still in the doldrums. The nature of our economy, we've never reinvented uh, an economy after coal and steel, as it were. We had a branch plant economy in manufacturing based on foreign investment. We are now a service economy. Public sector looms large. I think instead of apologising for the public sector, we should have bit the bullet earlier and said, we've got a large public sector relative to the economy as a whole. Let's make it one of the most dynamic public sectors in Europe, for example. So personally, I've done a lot of work on public procurement because it is one of the most effective tools in the toolbox for, for, for government. We spend around £6 billion every year on buying goods and services, and we should be deploying that more strategically. And the problem, in my view, has been a chronic shortage of skills in the public sector. And the other problem is the Welsh government and local government have never really addressed the problem we've identified, what, what I'd call the problem of unwarranted variability. I know that's a bit of a mouthful, but it's why leaders and laggards are treated the same. If you have a failing organisation in terms of its procurement, why aren't there consequences to that performance? That's the difference with the Basques. The Basques identify good practice and they make sure that that good practice travels well from one body to another. And that's one of the great failings of Welsh Government over 20 years. And it's a failing which Mark Drakeford understands very, very well. And it's why I'm personally very supportive of his candidature in the current leadership race. He understands not only how Welsh Government works, how it ticks, but more importantly, in my view, he understands why it doesn't work and where it doesn't work. And he's got the knowledge and determination to do something about that. But there's no quick fixes, are there? And I remember looking at various initiatives that there have been. I'm thinking of one at the moment where at the start of the term before this one, actually, at the Assembly, uh, Carwin Jones said that this would be the term of delivery and that there would be released uh, on a regular annual basis statistics which would demonstrate how targets were being moved towards. And I remember going to the press conference where he announced this, and the ludicrous thing was, in my view, that they produced a whole load of parameters which were reproduced in this document that was released for public consumption, but there were no baselines there at all. So you you were starting from a position where you didn't know what the baselines were. And it just seemed to me that the civil service hadn't actually been able to, to come up with anything dynamic. I mean, it may very well have been that they'd been asked to, to do the work and to come up with it, but they hadn't come up with it. And I remember seeing a civil servant looking quite embarrassed when I was asking questions about this. What is the problem? Do we have a problem with the civil service in Wales? Yes, we do. It's part of the problem. It's part of the collective problem. I mean, every institution in Wales uh, is complicit in our developmental performance. So there's nobody that uh, that, that that can say that they're above uh, uh, above being involved. What I would say, though, that you've put, you've put your finger on a very very important point about the calibre of the civil service in Wales. We really do need to address this issue to create a more open style of governance. 
you know, we accuse the Welsh office tradition of being a Raj style of government, you know, very hierarchical, very, very, uh, very disdainful of engaging with partners. In my own little world of public procurement, for example, to go back to that for a moment, that sums up this problem very well. I participated in a very, very long and very good review that Welsh Government held on public procurement to learn the lessons of what works where and why. And at the end of it, I was absolutely shocked, truly shocked, when I was told that the civil service had decided to suppress this report and not to publish it because it could embarrass certain bodies. And that is a good example of where our public sector is not punching its weight. We need more openness, more transparency and a more dynamic ethos in the civil service to identify good practice and to make sure that that good practice is disseminated to other bodies. And you can't do that if you're suppressing reports like the procurement review. And one other point which I would add to that, uh, Kevin, to uh, broaden it uh, even further, if you like, is that there is a bit of a culture in Wales, isn't there, of people not putting their heads above the parapet because... There have been many occasions uh, in the many years that I've uh, worked as a journalist in Wales where there have been people who may have come to me or people have tipped me off about shortcomings in the public sector or in uh, issues relating to uh, the funding of bodies which are desperate to get the money through so they can carry on doing what they do. And yet when you try to get organizations and the leaders of organizations in the um, the third sector for example to go on the record about this they're extremely reluctant mm. to do so because they're dependent on Welsh yeah. government funding and so that adds to this sense of of a, of a country where people are not open and where as a consequence things aren't improved I, I think you again you, you've hit the nail on the head with respect to the sh- some of the shortcomings in our p- political culture. Uh, for example, Geraint Talvin Davis famously once said that Wales was the land of the pulled punch, which is a marvellous expression, and it summed up uh, our inability, uh, apparently, to to really speak frankly with each other. I used to argue with Rodri Morgan for 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 many years about this that if I was critical of, of an aspect of Welsh government, Rodri would say to me, uh, stop talking Wales down. You know, stop rocking the boat. When I would say, but it's constructive challenge. You know, you, every every system needs some constructive challenge, some grit in the oyster, as it were. Uh, otherwise, they are not being kept on their toes. Your own uh, coverage over the years has helped to keep the, the people in power on their toes but there are too few of you uh, in Wales to create that scrutiny of uh, of the public realm that we need. And sadly, even some of my ac- academic colleagues are, are often too coy and too uh, too afraid to speak on the record in public. And these are all symptoms, I think, of a of a of a cowed culture that people are too afraid to speak on the record. Personally, I've always felt the need to speak on the record. I've never believed in in speaking off the record so that people know where one stands, as it were. But um, that seems to be going out of fashion, sadly. I think you've had a bit of jip, haven't you, in the past because of things that you've said in public? 
I've had uh, I've had some pushback from various people. My wife says that we've got a cabinet at home full of empty gongs. All the gongs I've never uh, won. I suppose that's a that's a compliment uh, in a sense. You you have to speak your mind, and um, you have to pose constructive challenge to to the organisation. But many organisations, you know, not just politics, business, universities. People often will um, will self censor for reasons of fear, of favoritism, or, or whatever. And no system can be its best if it doesn't instill a culture where it encourages some constructive challenge. And that's absolutely essential, I think, to a dynamic culture, whether it's in business, politics or universities. So to uh, use a phrase that was um, popularised in the final years of the Soviet Union, we need a bit of glasnost. (laughs) A bit more glasnost in Wales would would help, and, uh, and 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 that's why I come back to this issue, that it's quite important this Labour leadership election because uh, I believe Mark Drakeford has the commitment and the knowledge to create a more radical agenda, to create a more open political culture in Wales. Now I know that something very practical that you've been involved with over the years, Kevin, is the drive to improve school meals. Uh, I mean, that's something that everybody can understand. Um, It's not just a theoretical thing, uh, which is perhaps, you know, going to appeal to a a minority of people who understand the political culture, but it's something that affects so many people. What has been your observation about the way that your uh, drive to improve uh, school meals has been met by the authorities? Well, when we started this work uh, around 2000, uh, many of my academic colleagues thought it was sort of beneath the dignity of the academy to look at school dinners because it seemed such a prosaic thing. But, of course, it's the ultimate test for me of a society's commitment to sustainable development because it is uh, the quality of food on a child's plate that helps to create a nutritious meal and if a child has a nutritious meal, they are more receptive, in my view, to learning. That, that's a simple, a simple point. So we developed this, these projects, and in the end, we got uh, funding. And once funding came into the equation, somehow the academy took it seriously. And ultimately, of course, we were invited to the United Nations to present this work, which is one of the high points of my career, quite frankly, to go to New York to present our our book on school food reform. So being in the United Nations confirmed to me that people all around the world, whatever their differences, colour, creed, religion or whatever, everybody cared about school food. And uh, that that was a, a, a truly sobering moment for me to see that. This was a global issue. What had started off in Wales, in Powys, I think, we started was an issue that resonated worldwide. And in Wales, we embraced the message, but the practice has been uneven. So once again, we've had leaders and laggards. And I come back to this. And in our book on school food reform, we, we popularised this phrase that we'd used, that good practice is a bad traveller. That you had leaders and laggards in local authorities, cheek by jowl, living next door to each other. You'd think that the good practice would have spilled over. And why didn't it spill over? Well, 
not enough commitment from within local government and not enough pressure from Welsh government to do what the Basques do, which was disseminate good practice. So school food, for me, is still a litmus test of a society's commitment to social justice and sustainable development. As prosaic as it is, the school lunch is, uh, is key. As a social scientist, Kevin, how do you argue the case for the kind of work that you and other colleagues do? What can it do to improve the quality of life for ordinary people? Well, I think the, the big change in social science in recent years has been the rise of the research impact agenda. Now academics are obliged to, to show the impact of their work. And this has created a new, opened the door for me and uh, people like me, because research that is impactful can now have a better chance of being funded and young scholars can see that they need to think more about the social impact of their research. So the days of the ivory tower are well and truly buried. Thanks very much indeed, Kevin Morgan. Thanks for listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. We'll be back for more next week.